Amen. Well, guys, it is good to be with you today. I want to welcome you to the Austin Stone Community Church. I want to give a special welcome out to our other campuses that are joining us today in worship. We're glad that you are with us today. I want to introduce somebody to you. Um, it is a good friend of mine. This is, uh, his name is Dr. Jim Shaddix. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Shaddix. Dr. Shaddix is uh, on staff as one of the preachers at Brook Hills Church in Alabama, in Birmingham, Alabama. He uh, works with David Platt. He's on the teaching team with David Platt. David Platt's the author of Radicals. Some of you guys may have heard of David before. Um, Dr. Shaddix is also a professor at the seminary that I go to. I don't know if you've noticed a theme, but I've had a lot of my professors here uh, over the preaching series. Dr. Shaddix was my uh, professor of expositional preaching. He is one of my mentors. He is one of my favorite preachers. He's one of the guys that I look to and say, I want to preach that way. More importantly, he's one of the men that I've looked at in my life and said, I want to be a man like that. He loves his wife, loves his family, loves the church. He's humble. He's a man of God. And we're just really excited to have Dr. Shaddix here today. So would you guys welcome him today? Ephesians chapter 1 in your copy of the Bible. Let me ask you to open it there if you don't have a Bible with you and Somebody sitting close to you has one, either electronically and hard copy, just look real lonely uh, to your right or your left, and maybe somebody will let you look on. But uh, that's the passage of Scripture that I want you to turn to. If you don't know where that is, look in a table of contents or do a search. This will be our text of study, verses 15 through the end of the chapter. While you're turning there, uh, let me just say a word of thanks. I want to take up your time with needless preliminaries. My parents raised me in such a way when someone does something nice for you to say thank you, your pastor, and you have honored my wife and I, and uh, just the opportunity to be here back in my home state. Uh, We grew up. uh, I was born and raised in El Paso, Texas. My wife grew up there. That's where our journey together began. I have a brother who's been in law enforcement in this city, a father who's been involved in public education in the state of Texas here in Austin for many years, so this has been an opportunity for us to come home. So we We thank you uh, for that. You've been very, very gracious uh, to us. Let me tell you the outline this morning. If you just want to write this down, this is kind of the big picture of where we're going. Spiritual illumination leads to our realization of Jesus' exaltation. Spiritual illumination leads to our realization of Jesus' exaltation. You don't get anything else when we walk out here today. I want you to take that home with you. And I want to show it to you in God's word this morning. So hear the word of the Lord. I guess when a prayer finds its way into the canon of inspired scripture, um, it, it becomes God's will for all of us. This is one of the places Paul just prayed. So we have a prayer in scripture. And he's praying this Obviously for the Christians in the church at Ephesus, but by virtue of the fact that we find it on the pages of the Word of God, it becomes God's will for all of us. So that's the way I want you to hear it today. Verse 15 in Ephesians 1, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but but in the one to come and he put all things under his feet and he gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who who fills all in all When I got to college a number of years ago, uh, God let me fulfill a childhood dream. And that childhood dream was to play college football. Now, I know some of you are thinking at that point, that makes sense. When I stood up this morning, some of you were thinking, that guy works out right there. (laughs) No, listen, the operative word was dream. You remember that? I mean, it was far-fetched. It was not very big or fast or strong, but... I just grew up loving the game, and I, I wanted to do that, and so I was, I was fortunate to be able to, to sign a scholarship with a Division II school at that time in Northeast Alabama, and, and I went there, and I, I began to live out the dream. And I just happened to show up at my university uh, at a time when they were desperate for quarterbacks. Uh, now, they had signed a guy who was a real college quarterback. And I mean, he would had an arm like a rocket. He bench pressed as much as our linemen did. He was fast. He was smart. He was everything you wanted in a college quarterback. And then there was a, a group of the rest of us. And, and, and we were always scrambling for the second team spot. And, and I, was, I was fortunate to that first year while I was living out this dream, just glad to be on the team, glad to be a college football player, have my name in the press guide, all of those cool things, and, and yet every day just scrapping for, for, for a place on the roster. And, and at the end of the day in that, that first year, I came out as the second team quarterback, and I was pumped. I was so excited. Now, I want to tell you, it's a secular university. But the prayer life of people at our school skyrocketed during my time because they knew if our first team guy went down, we were in trouble. I mean, it was not going to be pretty. But I was having the time of my life. I was glad to be there. Had played ball at a small West Texas school uh, outside of El Paso. Played offense and defense. Never knew what it meant to sit on the bench. Here I was in college, sitting on the bench. Now as a second team quarterback. But I was just glad to be on the team. I was pumped. And, and we always had a routine at, in the spring of every year. Right? You know, we'd go through spring practices, and at the end of the spring, our coach would have an individual meeting with each and every one of us just to kind of see what our goals were and what we were looking at going into the summer, looking at next fall. And I never will forget the day that I was meeting with my coach. I mean, I had worked hard. I, I had, I had you know, gone through winter workouts. I had lifted weights. I'd come in, watch films. Actually, over the summertime, I had worked out every day and just you know, given everything to it because I wanted to continue to live this dream. And so we went through winter workouts, got into spring training, got through that, met with my coach that day. And, and I remember sitting in his office across his desk and he, he looked at me and he said, Jim, tell me what your goals are as you look at next fall. And I was ready. I sat up on the end of my chair. 
And I told him all the stuff I'd been doing, how hard I'd been working, the extra films I'd watched, extra weights I'd lifted, exercise that I'd done. And, and, and I looked across the desk at him and said, Coach, I've done all of this stuff because I'm committed to this. And I want you to know when we go into next, next year, I will be the second team quarterback. And immediately I detected that my coach was not near as excited about that deal as I was. And it was his time to sit up on the edge of his seat and he looked across the desk at me and he didn't call me Jim this time. He said, Shaddix, I'm not interested in you being the second team quarterback. I'm interested in you being the first team quarterback. And when I walked out of my coach's office that day, I realized something. I realized that in one short year, coming out of high school, not knowing what it meant to sit on the bench, not knowing what it meant not to play, in one short year, I had become satisfied with simply being on the team. And I had lost sight of the fact of what it meant to want to play the game. Now, now listen to me. I want you to come in here real close. It's one thing to do that with something as trivial as a sport. It's an entirely different thing to do that with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one of the players in the game in which God very explicitly says in his word, there are no second teamers. We're all in this together. But my experience with pastors, uh, churches that I've pastored, my experience with my own life has been that it is it's so easy to come into this thing by this glorious gospel that we call Christianity and just grow satisfied in a very short time just being a spectator, just being somebody that's, that's glad to be there. And I'm glad I'm saved. I'm glad I'm going to heaven. I'm glad I get to go and worship at a cool church and sing songs. I, I'm glad that I can have, have that feeling that go, goes along with it sometimes. But to look around you sometimes and think, you know what? When, when I look at some of the other people that are playing this game, that are on this journey, I'm not so sure that I have a real part to play. And, and it's easy, isn't it? It's easy to, to grow satisfied with your name written in the book of life at, it's easy to grow satisfied being able to put your head on your pillow at night knowing you're going to heaven. It's easy to grow satisfied just being on the team. It's a group of people like that that Paul was writing to. That's what we're dealing with in this passage of Scripture. You see, there were two kinds of Christians in Ephesus. There were Christians who had been saved out of a Jewish background. That they had been the people of God, the chosen people, and they, they came to know the gospel, they got it, they understood this is what this is the reason they were chosen, this is what it was about. And then there was everybody else. There was everybody else saved out of whatever else kind of background. So there were Jewish Christians and there were Gentile Christians. And and it's probably no surprise to us, knowing human beings like we do, that some of the Jewish Christians apparently hung it over the heads of the Gentile Christians. They just kind of had the upper hand a little bit. They were 
a little bit better, a little bit more gifted, a little bit more in God's grace. And if you read the book of Ephesians, you will see this very clearly because Paul in places like chapter 2 verse 11 says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, he goes into talking about this wall of partition, how God's broken it down and now they have come into the family. Verse uh, Chapter 3 verse 1, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. Watch this now. It's incredibly important. Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to only one of those groups of people. He's writing to the group of people that had been made to feel like second class Christians. They've been made to feel like second teamers. They had been made to feel like, you know, yeah, they were saved, but they didn't you know, they didn't quite have everything those, those Jewish Christians had. Now, now, some of you know a little bit about New Testament background, and you know that the Apostle Paul fit into the first group. He was a Jewish Christian. He was saved out of a Jewish background. He, he was writing at this point to Gentile believers, but he was writing as a Jewish believer. This is why you have what you have in the first part of this chapter. If you have never noticed it before, I call your attention to all of the the personal pronouns that are used there as Paul begins in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for the adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved in him we have redemption through blood for the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan in the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth verse 11 in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to open Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then everything changes. In verse 13, everything changes. Because the apostle Paul says this, in him you also trusted. When you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do you understand what Paul is doing? He's writing as a Jewish Christian with all of those privileges and blessings that came with being the chosen people, writing to a group of people in the church at Ephesus who have been made to feel like second-class Christians. They didn't quite have the same giftedness, the same grace, and saw themselves as just ones glad to be on the team, sitting on the sidelines, never really getting in the game. And Paul goes through all of these blessings for the Jewish Christians and turns around and says, guess what? In you also God did this work. And at that point, right there in verse 13 of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, there aren't any second, there aren't any second team Christians. There are, there are no levels to this deal. And so he begins to pray. 
that was so serious, it was so huge, so paramount that Paul begins to pray that these Gentile Christians would understand this, they would get it. And they would come to the realization that not only did God not leave them out, he brought them in on equal footing with this glorious gospel to be participants and not spectators, to be players and not people who were buying a ticket to watch a game or even guys standing on the sideline who are just glad to be on the team. And so the first thing that he prays for is spiritual illumination because he knows this He knows that the flesh, these bodies we live in, and he knows the attack of the enemy that pushes against us is going to do everything he possibly can to get us to miss this. He knows that it's going to take a work of the Spirit of God to break through the hardness sometimes that is there that leads us to simply be glad to be on the team. And that's why he says in verse 15, for this reason. Because I heard of your faith. I saw all the signs that you truly believe. I I started praying, he says. I I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then he begins to pray like this. In, In verse 17, my English translation begins with the word that. It may say in order that. You find that again in the middle of verse 18. You'll find the word that or in order that. These are progressive purpose clauses. Let me tell you what that means. It means one follows from the other. Paul essentially is saying this. I am praying that this will happen so that something else will happen. It's like when you were young, your mama said don't play in the street. It didn't make any sense. Street was the funnest place to pray. The ground, the play, where the ground was flat and the, the ball bounced higher and it was just a cool place to play. But she just kept saying, don't play in the street. What she meant was, don't play in the street so that you don't get hit by a car, so that you don't die. Just wish she had said that. It had been a lot simpler. She just said, don't play in the street. Paul says, I'm praying for something to happen in your life. I'm praying for spiritual illumination. And that's what he prays for in verse 17. Do you see it? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Those are all words of understanding. They are words of, I get it, that this makes sense. They they, they are words that describe coming to the place where you grab a hold of something by the grace of God. And he uses the word at the end of verse 18, knowledge in the knowledge of him. Language of the New Testament, there are three different words that are translated by the word know in our English text. One of them is a word that simply means to to be aware of something. Another one is a word that means to experience something. The third one is a word that means to have the most intimate, thorough knowledge possible. It would be like if I came in here today and one of you met me at the door and and you said, well, you know, now Shaddix, there, there are some steps up there when you go up on the stage. Don't trip over them. You've made me aware of it. I now know they're here because I'm aware. There are some of you that are a little bit more mischievous and you might think, well, you know what? He's a seminary professor. Let's see if he can figure it out himself. And I, so I come up here on my own, not knowing this. It's a little dark and I trip over this first step. I know the steps are there now, not because you told me, but because I've experienced them. This third word is a word that's as if 
I don't know whether you told me or I experienced it, but I know that they're there. And I just come over here and I'd sit down and I'd look at the texture of them and the green tape that's on them and the thing that I'm getting to know these steps. You can probably figure out which word Paul's using here. Number three, most intimate, thorough knowledge possible. Paul says this is a work of the Spirit of God. This is a huge deal. This, this identity and understanding that there are no second teamers here and there are going to be so many people deceived by it and the flesh pushes us against it. It pushes us down. It causes us to compare ourselves to other people and say, I can't sing like that guy. I can't preach like that guy. I can't lead a small group like that guy. I can't witness like that girl. And, and when we look at ourselves and we, we, we look at all the players and begin to think, man, I just... You know, I, I just don't have it. And Paul says, this is going to take a work of the Spirit of God that only he can do to bring us to a place of the most intimate, thorough knowledge possible of this whole deal. And he describes it at the beginning of verse 18. Look at it there in your Bible. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. You know what that means? It means having the eyes of your hearts open. That, that's all it's talking about. Do you know your eyes had spiritual, your, your, your heart had spiritual eyes? I used to sing a song when I was young, this little chorus, Open the Eyes of My Heart, uh, Lord. And I used to think that was really weird because we always sang it with our eyes open. And I thought, why are we talking about opening the eyes of when our eyes? But, but, but it was a good song. It, it, was, it was theologically accurate because you can have your physical eyes open, but your spiritual eyes, the eyes of your heart, closed. And, and so the Apostle Paul looks at these Gentile Christians. He writes to them and says, I want you to get this. It's so huge that you understand this because everything is going to be pushing the other way. Basketball experts apologize for multiple sports illustrations. I know everybody doesn't follow sports. It's a big sports town, but uh, I hope they make the point. In 1996, uh, Basketball experts, some would say, fielded arguably the best basketball team that's ever been put on one court in Dream Team 2 during the 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta. Had the, the likes of Charles Barkley and Carl Malone and John Stockton and David Robinson and, and Scottie Pippen. They, they were from the original team. And then a couple of new guys named Shaquille O'Neal and Akeem Olajuwon and just this powerhouse. I never will forget the first game against Argentina. Not long into the game, Argentina was actually winning 15 to 14. Something happened in the Georgia Dome. Um, that, that I, I think God used to teach me a lesson, remind me a lesson right here. I remember sitting in my, my, my apartment in, on the campus of New Orleans Seminary watching all of this unfold. Just a little bit into the game, the, the lights in the Georgia Dome went out. And, and for about eight minutes, you know, they were scrambling to try to figure out the technical di difficulties. They were going back and forth to the commentators. They'd go to other events just trying to, you know, to, to compensate for the time. And, and then they would come back to the Georgia Dome. And you could kind of see the teams down on the sidelines in the shadows. And I was kind of sitting there tracking with all that. And, and while I was sitting there, the thought crossed my mind. This is kind of ironic. You've got maybe the greatest basketball team ever to be on a court and then and, and, and they represent millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. They've got the most ability that anybody has ever seen. Everybody knows them. They're renowned all over the world. All of those guys are characterized. They, they characterize all of those things right there. And it hit me that for those eight minutes, they were all on the sideline. And it wasn't because they didn't have enough ability. It wasn't because they didn't make enough money. It wasn't because nobody knew who they were. 
It was simply because the lights were out. I wonder how often God looks at the church that way. All that I've invested, all these stuff I just described here, Paul describes in chapter 1 leading up to this, all of the riches, all of the blessing, all of the grace, and he tells these Gentile believers, you've been brought into this, you've been saved into this, and yet so many of them had bought into a lie. A lie that they were second teamers, they were second class, and they had settled into becoming spectators with all of the resources of God. Paul says, I'm praying for spiritual illumination. But do you remember that second progressive purpose clause? You have it in the middle of verse 18. Right after he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened... There you find it again, the word that or in order that. Paul says, I'm not just interested in you having spiritual illumination. I want the spiritual illumination to lead to something. When the lights come on, I want you to see what is there. And that's why they say spiritual illumination leads to our realization of certain things that God has done in our lives. And that's the way it is when lights come on, right? You came in here today and it was pitch black. And this room was filled with the people that are in this room right now. They would be having the same colors on that they have now. Their hair would be combed the same way. You just can't see it. But if somebody flipped the light switch and you looked over at the person next to you, and you say, oh, yeah, you got a blue shirt on. Oh, you made your hair do really weird things. And oh, yeah. Man, listen, all that stuff was there before. It was just dark and you couldn't see it. And so Paul says, some of you living this Christian life thing in the dark. So I want the spiritual illumination to take place so that you'll see some things that have been there all the time ever since you got saved. What are those things? Well, Paul mentions three. Beginning in verse 18, he says, man, you got a big future, a bright future. Notice that you may know. See the word know, it's a different word. It's that second word or the first word I mentioned that just means to be aware. It's not the same way. He said, when the lights come on, you just become aware of things. And he said, here's what I want you to be aware of. I want you to know what is the hope to which he has called you. Hope in the Bible is a sure thing. It's not like hope in, 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 in the world. You know, when we use the word hope in our, our culture, it's a maybe, it's a might be, it's a wannabe, but not in the Bible. New Testament speaks of the word hope. It's a certainty. And he talks about the hope of our calling. He's talking about the assurance and the certainty of our future relationship with Christ. He'll never leave us or forsake us. And, and while we're on a journey in this world as pilgrims passing through, he's coming back for us. And we know that we're going to spend eternity with him in heaven. This is a done deal. It is, it is signed, it is sealed, and it's at least partially delivered at this point right here. But it is for sure. Paul says, I want you to know this. Some of us live our Christian life like it's a, you know, yeah, I'm saved by grace, but now I'm, you know, I do this Christian life by, by works and I got to earn some points and it might come, it might go. I, you know, I got to figure out how to hang on to this thing. I'm kind of in a panic. And Paul says, no, what I want you to see when the lights come on is that this is a done deal. It's, it's for sure. You got a bright future. You not only got a bright future, you got incredible value. Look at the second thing that he mentions there. He says, not only the hope to which he has called you, but what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, don't miss this. 
What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Let me tell you what that doesn't say. It doesn't say what are the glorious riches of your inheritance in God. Most of the time we talk about inheritance with regard to the Christian life. That's what we're referring to, right? Now we got an inheritance waiting for us. You just talked about it, Shaddix. We're signed, sealed, and delivered. We're on our way to heaven. Can't wait to get there. It's going to be so cool. No more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. Plus, you know, I don't know what those mansions look like and streets of gold and all that cool stuff and floating around maybe on, I don't, I, you know, it's just, we just know it's going to be cool, right? We don't have all the, you know, all the answers, but man, that's our inheritance waiting on us. Did you look at your Bible? Notice this is not a reference to your inheritance or mine. It says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? This is not talking about your inheritance or mine. This is talking about God's inheritance. This is talking about what God has waiting on him in this deal. And do you know what God has waiting on him in this deal? You, me. You ever thought about that? The only thing that God has to look forward to in heaven that he doesn't already have is you, your presence. The first thought that's got to come to our mind is, man, that ain't much. That's Paul's whole point. To God it is. To God it is. It's huge. It's all he wants. It's you. I, I don't know what you've been through. I, I don't know what, how your parents treated you or, 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 or what kind of abuse you might have suffered or, or, or things that you didn't sign up for in life or your current circumstances are going on that may not be the best thing. I don't know what, what this world has, has put on your plate and brought your way. I want you to know this with regard to eternity, that God looks at you and he says, you're all that I want. I treasure you that much. You are my prize possession and I love you deeply and you know how many Christians are going through the Christian life not getting that not understanding that because the lights are off and Paul says I'm praying I'm praying that the spirit will illuminate you and the lights will come on so you will know of the hope of your calling but I also want you to know just the infinite immeasurable value that God places on you and it gets better. There's another thing. In the text, he says, there's a third thing. When the lights come on, he says, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? I mean, this is like Paul can't find enough ways to tell us how big and how great and how powerful the resources God has put in our lives to live this Christian life thing. My English text says the, the immeasurable greatness. It's the word from which we get our word mega. We know what that means. This is big. The word powers, the word from which we get our word dynamite. And that's not, by the way, like our dynamite. It's just quick, explosive growth and it's gone. It's more like the, 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 the power the, of gasoline that goes into your car. Nothing flashy about it, but it just goes in there and it just helps things go for a long time. Not near as long as it used to, but for a long time. He says the mega 
power toward us who believe according to the working. This is a word from which we get our word energy. The energizing, he says, of his great might. Remember the energizer bunny, pink rabbit with the, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the, the drum and you see the advertisement and all the world is falling apart around him. But that, that bunny's just going across the stage, you know, and, and then the announcer comes on and what does he say? Keeps on going, right? Well, if you've ever used an energizer buzz, you know that is not true. <laughs> Sooner or later, the rabbit dies, right? Okay? Yeah. But, but not so with God's resource in your life. Energizing, energizing, energizing. And it keeps on going. That's what Paul says. He says, I want, I want the lights to come on so you don't miss that. You go through your Christian life standing on the sidelines thinking, man, I didn't get the whole dose. I don't have everything that is, is, is needed to live this thing out. Paul says, no, you got everything. You got a, you got a bright future, a sure future. You got the, the, the most greatest value in all of the universe that God places on your life because he loves you as a prized possession. He cherishes you dearly and, and he knows your journey in this life. So he has, he has resourced you like you wouldn't believe. And Paul just can't find enough ways to describe it. And, and, and actually... He underscores it all with the next phrase in verse 20. This power he's talking about, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Let me just say this, and then you can take it home with you and mull on it. He says the same power that has been put in your life to live the Christian life and be on the field as a participant is the same power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead. I just meditate on that for a while. So that leads to the third. Spiritual illumination leads to our realization of all of these things, but all of these things are not an end in and of themselves. They are to the end of Jesus' exaltation. And so Paul just kind of launches off of that pad right there of this power of Christ in your life, same power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead to talk about why God is doing all of this. It's not just to help me survive the Christian life, to get through and make the day. Here's what he says. He says it's about Jesus' exaltation. Notice, with regard to the exaltation of Christ in these last few sentences here, he says he raised him from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. It says that God seated Jesus at his right hand. You see it at the verse 21. Seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. It says that God made Jesus' head over everybody and everything for all of eternity. Listen to it. Verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. How do you say it any player? Jesus is in charge of everybody and everything for all times. That's part of his exaltation. And let me just remind you, that is part of your call to participation in the advancement of the gospel. He raised him from the dead. He seated him at his right hand. He made him head over all people of all times and everything. And then, and then God gave Jesus to the church to unite all of his creation forever. You see it in the middle of verse 22? 
He gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I mean, that's some deep theology right there. So what does he mean by fills all in all? And he gave this one who's in charge of everything and everybody for all time to the church and, and we're his body and, and, and somehow that's the fullness of, of, of this one who fills it. What in the world is he talking about? Could I take you back to Paul's introduction just for a moment? Specifically to verses 9 and 10 when he's talking about all those blessings given to the Jews. He says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. Watch it now. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth. We don't have time this morning to unpack every bit the implications of that, but suffice it to say, beloved, this morning that this is the agenda of God. This is his eternal mission. This is what he is about, is to take all of his creation and and that it was intended for the glory and honor of his praise through the person of Jesus Christ and bring it to fruition for all of eternity. This is what he's been working on from the beginning of time. He chose a people through which he would introduce Messiah. He raised up a bride called the church that is headed for eternity to be the manifestation of, 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 of bringing all this together where it makes sense, where life makes sense, where eternity makes sense, where all of this stuff makes sense. And the apostle Paul says to the Gentile believers, you are part of that. You're part of that. Because you see, it, it, it's at this point we have to understand Paul's still in the same thought. Whatever he says here is tied to whatever he said before. And whatever he said before was, was, was said in view of this. And that means your realization and my realization of the hope of our calling and, and, and the fact that we are his inheritance and, and, and these resources that we have been given to carry out the mission of God and proclaim his glory among the nations in our communities, in our apartment buildings, on our campuses, everywhere we go to the ends of the earth to advance the cause of Christ is tied to this agenda. And nobody, nobody has been left out. And nobody, nobody is on the second team. We're in this with everything that we need to advance his agenda and advance his cause for the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And God, though I don't understand all of the implications of what that looks like, just know it's really, really big. So let me give you three applications based on this. Number one, pray that you will get this. Or pray that for others to get this that you don't know. That's what Paul's doing. He's praying for it. So our first application is, well, man, if Paul needed to pray for it, then we need to pray for it. If you have any inclination that you're going through the Christian life in the dark, on this stuff, pray that God will give you illumination of his spirit. And then get involved in his mission in this world. Get off the sidelines. When, 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 when this truth grips you and the lights come on, you say, I see that. I'm not a second teamer and all this is really about me. Then get up and get moving. Find a place to serve. Find somebody to share Jesus with. Consider leveraging everything you've got. 
everything you've got, your, your job, your education, your home, you're your, your leveraging everything God's giving you and ask, how do I use this? How do I leverage it for the advancement of the gospel among the nations? Because this is why we're on the planet. And this is what it means to be a player and to be on the field. And then finally, live to glorify God in Jesus Christ. You do that so well in this room and your music and your preaching that you get on a weekly basis here from your pastoral team and the things that you're involved with. Continue to look in every aspect of your life. How do I live for the glory of God through Jesus Christ? Because this is his eternal mission. I think when my coach looked across the table at me and said, Jim, I'm not interested in you being a second-team quarterback. I'm interested in you being a first-team quarterback. I think he knew. He was smart enough to know that I probably would never be the first-team quarterback. But he also understood this, that if being the second-team quarterback was my goal, it would affect every day when I went to practice, every film session I went into, and every game which I went out on the field. And he knew that my goal was too short. I want to challenge you to these things. I want to challenge me to these things today so that every day we wake up, every day we wake up, we know God's done all this in our life for his glory and his honor. Let's pray together. Father, it would be foolish for us to pray anything else at this point other than this. That you, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give to us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ to the end that we would have our eyes, the eyes of our hearts opened and that we would see all this that you have given to us resources with how precious we are to you in view of the advancement of your mission an eternal mission Lord I, I pray for every believer within the sound of my voice beginning with myself God strengthen us at that point give light where there's darkness open eyes where they're closed God you sanctify us to this end And God, I pray for friends who listen today who are not yet in on this because they've not said yes to Jesus. Lord, I pray that your spirit would do the work that only he could do to open their hearts and minds, illuminate their minds, stir their hearts, and change their wills to say yes to Jesus, to repent of sin, and to trust him and him alone for salvation. This is our prayer, Lord. Now receive our continued worship. 